So this this is going to end up on YouTube as well, isn't it? Yeah. You, yeah. You, you, you're good with that, Catherine, right? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I have to apologize because uh, you didn't tell me the last time we were going to put this on YouTube. And I was in my bed, in my pajamas, happy. I didn't you look the same as what I thought you knew. Thank you. Oh, right. Okay. That's, that's, that's a little bit offensive. <laughs> I, I tried to make an effort today with like a with like a jacket and then my wife was asking where, where are you going and I was like nowhere um, how are you feeling Catherine yeah good thanks for having me on how's your nervous. yeah no that's okay how's your week been yeah it's been good um just been at work getting a couple of vibes so slowly getting into it not oh, good now you were you were a bit hesitant to come on but I but I just want to explore like the like what made you what made you decide yeah you know I'll, I'll give this a go um I think I sort of decided that it'd be good to put a bit of pressure on myself to step out of my comfort zone and actually like give it a bit of a crack with some more pressure on myself rather than just sort of talking through it with my study group and that sort of thing so that's makes really it feel great. a bit more like the real thing. That's really great. And, and when I think about, it, I feel like pressure is not new to you or, you know, most doctors, like, you know, first of all, you know, you, you, you went for medicine, right? Like year 12, you went for it, you absorbed that pressure and all your exams up to this point, but it, it does, does it feel a bit, and this is what I felt that now I've already proven myself. I've got, I've got this like perception of something to lose. And that's why I feel like I've got this pressure on me because people, think I'm smart and I don't want them to realize that I'm not that's what I thought yeah that's probably pretty accurate I think. yeah okay but but then the trajectory stops as soon as you believe that I think and that's what what you're doing is really great it took me I don't know if I told you this the first video that I made for YouTube was made in 2012 and it took me until 2020 to actually put it on YouTube that's how bad I was so well done you're, you're, you're far ahead of me and, and look at you now, La, you're a, you're a YouTube star. <laughs> but I think, but I think um, Catherine, that's a really good point in terms of that acceptance of, you know, the pressure and what's there to come. And, you know, they, they talk about action levels and, and how you're feeling, because at that stage, when you're sort of feeling doubtful, when you're sort of feeling a bit down on yourself, your action level in terms of what you, what you do is, is low. Whereas when you learn to accept and you become more positive about the, about, you know, the, the opportunities that are out there, your action level increases and you take these opportunities and that's how you learn. That's how you grow. And that's how you become a better person. So not, not just for this viber, but just life, life in general, little, I'm, I'm too old, as you can tell. Oh, so that's, too old. Too. Uh, Stan says that, but his actions don't speak like that at all. <laughs> too philosophical. Okay, no, that so, sounds very wise, Stan. Again, welcome everyone to ABC's of Anesthesia and the Anesthesia Coffee Break. Um, so we're going to do a, a Viva with Catherine. So thanks so much for coming on. We're going to go through the Viva four parts, just like the real Viva. But also I was thinking we might get a performance tip out of you as well, Catherine. Hey, Catherine, so let's start. Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot. Is there something that you you know, did or, you know, you would encourage people to do for your first part study uh, that you consider like a performance tip? I I think you guys have probably said this before, but I think consistency uh, was the biggest thing for me and also having a good study group. Um, shout out to them. <laughs> I have an amazing study group that I'm still 
studying with at the moment. And we made sure that every, every week we caught up um, and usually it was on a Sunday evening and we had like predefined tasks that we did. And I think that kept us all accountable um, right through the whole process, which I definitely would have been slacked off at times otherwise. But I think that was really important for us. That's fantastic. That's really good. I mean, that's the secret ingredient, isn't it? Have a support, you know, a really good support group behind you and keeping you accountable, keeping you consistent. Oh, all these are keys to success. So well, well done, Catherine. Well done. So let's get started. Um, Stan, did, did you want to go first with your questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll start the timer. Yep, I'll do that mm -hmm. now. And um, what will I do? I'll, um, I'll, I'll flash it up when maybe 20 seconds to go. Yeah, flash it up. Yep. Sounds good. Let's go starting now. All right. So Catherine, what is ketamine? Ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist that's commonly used for uh, induction of anesthesia, but also for other uses, including post-operative analgesia, analgesia as a, and as a pre-medication. How is ketamine presented? Ketamine typically comes in two mils, two mils with 200 milligrams uh, clear colorless solution, um, which is typically made up into a 20 mil solution, making 10 milligrams per mil. It has, it's quite acidic with a pH of about four uh, and the ketamine itself is a weak base with a pKa of 7.5. That's why it could be water soluble. Excellent. Does it contain any preservatives? It does contain preservatives. I think it's benzothonium chloride, uh, which means that it can't be used for neuraxial use. And with the ketamine itself, um, are there any sort of special properties about what's in it? Uh, probably, but I'm not quite sure what <laughs> you mean by that question. Um, so, so they say that ketamine is a race mix mixture. Uh, what do they mean yeah. by that? So um, ketamine is a racemic mixture is a mixture of equal amounts of two enantiomers. So ketamine has an R and S enantiomer. So the, and in Australia, it comes in the racemic mixture of um, R and S. Uh, you can actually get pure S um, enantiomer mixture overseas, but it's not available in Australia. Okay. And what do you mean by enantiomer? So enantiomer, Enantiomer is um, a type of stereoisomer that has a chiral center. So you have two different molecules that have the same molecular arrangement, uh, but they're essentially opposites of each other. So they can't be superimposed. And you said chiral center, what's a chiral center? A chiral center in anesthesia is usually a carbon or a quaternary nitrogen atom. Uh, which has four different groups surrounding it. Um, and the arrangement of those groups determines whether it's R or S. Uh, so that refers to the increasing number of the uh, molecular weight of those atoms surrounding the structure. Now, you mentioned that ketamine is a NMDA um, antagonist. Uh, like, explain to me how else it works. So aside from being an NMDA receptor antagonist, ketamine actually has a number of other uh, receptors that it works on, which can be associated with some of its side effects. Uh, so these include the muscarinic and nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. It's a weak mu opioid antagonist, but a caprin delta agonist. Um, and I think there's possibly another receptor that it works on too. Okay. I can't remember. 
And then tell me how it works on the NMDA receptor. So it's a non-competitive antagonist. It binds to the fencyclidine binding site uh, and prevents opening of the NMDA receptor, uh, therefore reducing excitatory transmission throughout the CNS. And what do you mean by non-competitive antagonists? So a non-competitive antagonist binds to a different site, to the um, allosteric site, so which is where the natural ligand binds. So, um, yeah, it doesn't work at the same site. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned that ketamine has multiple users, um, and one of them was analgesia. How, how does it produce its analgesic effects? Analgesic effects are predominantly through antagonism of the NMDA receptor in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Uh, so preventing ascending transmission. And it also has roles uh, in preventing opioid tolerance and in, in even reversing opioid tolerance. Now, you mentioned that uh, ketamine has some opioid receptor activity. If I use naloxone, does it have any effect on um, ketamine? I don't believe so. Okay. What are the side effects of ketamine? Ketamine has many side effects. Uh, if we break it down by system, the central nervous system side effects include agitation, delirium, hallucinations, uh, an increase in CMRO2 and therefore cerebral blood flow and intracranial pressure. Uh, Cardiovascular-wise, it's a direct myocardial depressant, but usually the sympathetic stimulation effects outweigh that and you get a tachycardia and hypertension. Uh, for in the respiratory system is the bronchodilator or rather the R enantiomer is. Uh, and there's some evidence that it can increase pulmonary vascular resistance. And it can also significantly, significantly increase secretions, um, lacrimation as well. Uh, and in terms of GRT, it does cause nausea and vomiting. Okay. And what's the mechanism of emergence delirium in, uh, with ketamine? So uh, some of that's thought to be through the um, antagonism of muscarinic receptors and nicotinic receptors in the CNS. Okay. Now, what does intracranial pressure mean to you? Intracranial pressure is the pressure exerted uh, within the cranial vault. And what's its normal value? Normal value is 5 to 15 millimetres of mercury. Why is it important we know what intracranial pressure is? Uh, intracranial pressure needs to be very tightly regulated uh, because if it above that area, you can end up with areas of focal and then global ischemia. So at 20 millimetres of mercury, you get focal ischemia and global above 50 millimetres of mercury. Okay. And what's the mechanism of how intracranial pressure causes focal ischemia? Uh, so the determinants of intracranial pressure can be described by the Munro-Kelly doctrine. So an increase in either brain, CSF or blood um, can increase um, intracranial pressure. Usually those things are buffered up to a point um, when buffering is exhausted and then intracranial pressure will rise. Um, and depending on where um, those, like for example, if there's a tumor, um, then you can cause focal ischemia nearby that. And, and when you talk about focal ischemia, like, like why is there a reduction in delivery of oxygen to those, to those cells? So you end up with uh, reduction. So the blood vessels essentially are compressed and so oxygen isn't able to get there. Okay. Now you mentioned about the Monroe Kelly doctrine and um, its components. How much does each approximately contribute? Uh, parenchyma tends to be 85, usually is 85%. Uh, CSF is 10% and blood is 
And you said there was compensation up to a point. Like what, what's this compensation? So the first thing that happens is CSF is displaced from the cranium down into the spinal cord um, or spinal canal. That contributes most of the buffering, although it is a bit slower. Uh, additionally, you can have venous buffering, which can be, so blood can be moved from the valveless venous sinuses down into the um, rest of the body and to reduce the pressure. And that is quick, but it doesn't have much uh, capacity. Now, what's the relationship between cerebral blood flow and cerebral blood volume? So if, so if I was to increase cerebral blood flow, does it automatically mean I'm increasing cerebral blood volume? Uh, no, it doesn't. So normally cerebral blood flow is auto-regulated over a range of 50 to 150 millimetres of mercury, meaning that flow is constant over that perfusion pressure. Okay. And then what are the factors that affect cerebral blood flow? Cerebral blood flow uh, factors determining it can be, um, can be described by... Ohm's law. So in terms of um, your perfusion pressure, MAP minus your so main arterial pressure minus your intracranial pressure um, divided by your cerebrovascular resistance. Uh, the most, in terms of cerebrovascular resistance, the most important determinant as described by Purcell's equation is radius. Uh, and things that change the radius include um, CO2, uh, oxygen, uh, acidosis, and um, the local metabolic demand of the tissue. Uh, so with increased CO2, you get vasodilation um, and then with decreased O2 and uh, a lower pH. Okay. So let's say above the um, autoregulation range where cerebral blood flow starts increasing, what magnitude of change would it have on cerebral blood volume? Uh, I think it can increase quite significantly at that stage. I can't actually quantify it though for you, sorry. Okay. Um, how do volatiles affect cerebral blood flow? Volatiles have a dose-dependent response on cerebral, cerebral blood flow um, through uncoupling of the relationship between CMRO2 and cerebral blood flow. Um, depending on where you read, at low volumes, it can actually decrease your cerebral blood flow due to the reduction in CMRO2. Uh, at about one MAC, it's thought that the relationship is about the same, so you end up with no change compared to baseline. And, and, when you um, say and, that, and when you say that there's no change, what, what's the other competing force to... So you, yeah. you have decreased CMRO2, um, but increased cerebral blood flow relative to that reduction in CMRO2. Yeah. And, and why would there be an increase in blood flow despite a decrease um, metabolic consumption? Uh, just because they cause direct they cause vasodilation. Yeah. Good. Okay, let's move on. What is anaphylaxis, Catherine? Anaphylaxis is a severe systemic uh, IgE-mediated type 1 allergic reaction. And tell me about the IgE. So IgE is produced uh, from initial exposure. So um, upon initial exposure, an antigen-presenting cell presents an ant the antigen or allergen um, to T helper cells, which activate B cells to produce IgE. IgE then coats uh, mast cells in the tissues and basophils in the circulation. And on upon subsequent exposure, th that IgE is cross-linked by the allergen, um, causing degranulation. 
What mediators are released on degranulation? There's initial mediators and then late mediators. The initial mediators are predominantly histamine and triptase um, and a small amount of serotonin. Late mediators are synthesized and include prostaglandins, uh, leukotriene and bradykinin and cytokines. And what does that cause? So it causes quite, so for histamine uh, is responsible for most of the immediate effects. Um, it causes quite profound capillary leakage, vasodilation, um, but also causes tachycardia and increased um, chronotropy. Uh, and what does the capillary leakiness cause? Uh, so it can cause, it causes um, like loss of fluid into the interstitium and you can get edema. Um, you also get decreased systemic vascular resistance, hypotension. Sounds good. Any other effects? Uh, so it's got effects, it can have effects on the respiratory system. So histamine causes, and particularly um, leukotrienes as well, cause bronchoconstriction. Uh, so you can have bronchospasm, high airway pressures if you're under anesthesia. Uh, there's also gastrointestinal effects. Uh, so nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and cutaneous signs, such as the wheel and flare response. Uh, and it can also have derangements on coagulation cause DIC. What happens in DIC? So you have a consumptive coagulopathy. Uh, there's consumption of um, rapid clotting as well as breakdown of clots and you get consumption of your coagulation factors and fibrinogen. And how would you treat anaphylaxis? The main treatment for anaphylaxis is adrenaline uh, alongside supportive treatment. Uh, so adrenaline is a adrenergic receptor agonist. It works at alpha-1, uh, beta-1 and beta-2 receptors. Its predominant effect in anaphylaxis is through the beta-2 effect of mast cell stabilization to prevent further degranulation and histamine relief. Any other effects of adrenaline? So its effects on the alpha-1 receptor uh, are more predominant at high doses and is vasoconstriction, increasing systemic vascular resistance and blood pressure. And on the beta-1 receptors uh, causes increased heart rate, um, increased anatropy and chronotropy uh, and increased contactability. Any other, any other beneficial, beneficial effects of adrenaline? Uh, on the respiratory system, the beta-2 effects also causes uh, bronchodilation, which is very helpful. What are, the, what are the supportive treatments? So supportive treatments, uh, we can go through our A to E approach. So in terms of you want to make sure that the airway is managed, so it might require intubation, ventilation, um, you can, in terms of breathing, you can use um, beta-2 agonists uh, to help with bronchospasm if it's not uh, improved by the adrenaline. You can give adrenaline nebs as well. Um, sometimes, so in terms of circulation, you can use um, fluid boluses um, and sometimes steroids are used as well. How much fluid is required? Or how much fluid uh, is sometimes required? It so it can be quite significant uh, through the capillary leakage. Uh, I think, I don't actually know an exact number, but perhaps 500 mils to a litre potentially could be lost. How does uh, adrenaline prevent mast cell histamine release? Uh, so it's through an act on, action on beta-2 receptors. Uh, so they're DS, decoupled protein receptors. Mm -hmm. Isn't that an aphylactoid reaction and how does it differ? An anaphylactoid reaction has very similar clinical a very similar clinical picture to an anaphylactic reaction, uh, except it's non-IgE mediated degranulation of mast cells. And is it severe, less severe? 
uh, it can be uh, just as severe. So clinically, you would probably just treat it as anaphylaxis. How do you, how do you, how would you differentiate between anaphylactoid or anaphylaxis? It's mostly due to um, testing with triptases later on. So while anaphylactoid reactions do still have mast cell degranulation and triptase release, uh, it's to a lesser extent than in the anaphylactic reaction. Are there any other cells involved in anaphylaxis? Uh, so apart from the mast cells, there's also the basophils in the circulation. Uh, and then later on, there's activation of the complement cascade and also of the, um, the cytokines cause chemotaxis and activation of other white cells. Okay, good. Let's change topic. What is in a bag of normal saline? Normal saline contains 154 millimoles per litre of sodium and 154 millimoles per litre of chloride. So it's essentially nine grams of sodium chloride in one litre of sterile water. What's, what's normal about normal saline? Not much. <laughs> There's not much physiological um, about normal saline. The only thing that is perhaps physiological is its um, osmolality, which is 285 milliosmoles per litre as the non-ideal although its ideal um, osmolality is 308 milliosmoles per litre. Um, so it is isotonic, I, isoosmolar, I should say. What is the difference between osmolarity and osmolality? So osmolality is the number of osmoles per kilogram of solution and osmolarity with an R is the number of osmoles per kilo, sorry, osmoles per litre of solution. So what is the, what's this difference? So normally there shouldn't really be any difference um, because usually one liter equals one kilo, uh, but in situations where it doesn't, then they can be different. And uh, sorry, what 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 what, uh, what would make those two values different? So, uh, for example, if there was if you had increased temperature, um, then the one liter would um, essentially swell in volume because the molecules. Um, move further apart and then it wouldn't uh, be the same. And how do you measure osmolality? So osmolality is measured with an osmometer uh, and that uses the fact that one osmol will depress the freezing point of a substance by 1.86 Kelvin. And how is osmolarity calculated? Osmolarity is calculated uh, from using two times, it's the calculation of two times the sodium concentration plus glucose plus urea. Uh, so of those osmotically active uh, substances in the plasma. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are colligative properties? Colligative properties are properties of a solution that are entirely based on its osmolality um, or osmolarity and not uh, the particles themselves. And what are those? So they include uh, depression of the vapor pressure, depression of freezing point, uh, elevation of boiling point and osmotic pressure. Mm -hmm. um, what does antifreeze do? Antifreeze is essentially adding osmoles to a solution. So it depresses the freezing point um, of a solution. Mm -hmm. And how does that work? Uh, it works by the same way that um, osmols depress freezing point. I guess it's kind of like adding salt to a road um, in winter and it prevents freezing by reducing the freezing point of the water on the road. So, so what is the similarity with antifreeze then? 
um, I guess it's probably the same property in that it's just um, depressing the freezing point uh, of osmols. What is it about the antifreeze that depresses it? That it has a large number of osmols. Sounds good. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I'm probably no, no, that's exactly right. up the wrong tree. <laughs> Tell me about anion gap. So the anion gap um, is the difference. Uh, sorry, I'm just like stuck in colligative properties. <laughs> the anion gap is the difference between um, the measured cations and the measured anions in solution. So it's sodium plus potassium minus bicarb minus chloride. And when you have a wide anion gap, what does that mean? So a high anion gap means that there's the presence of unmeasured anions in solution. Uh, typically, these are things that can cause like a high anion gap metabolic acidosis. So includes lactate, ketones, uh, toxins, and renal failure. What happens if you give too much normal saline? If you give too much normal saline, you can end up with a normal anion gap metabolic acidosis, um, which is due to hyperchloremia. Excellent. And that's time. Well done. Well done. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> Thanks, that was hard. <laughs> Do you, oh, challenging. Do you feel all right? Yeah. <laughs> I was a Good. bit rattled by the um, antifreeze. <laughs> I may have just asked the same question again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it was increased number of particles. Um, I, I, so first of all, for me, yeah, you, you present really well. You speak really well. You're you know, to, to the point, the way, the strategy of the way you're answering the question, you know, to the point, then with a pause, you know, allow, allow you to kind of further answer, the, ask more questions. Uh, yeah, and you know, you knew a lot of detail about that stuff. So yeah, absolutely fantastic. Well done. Thanks. No, I, and I think that's a really important point you make, Lark, because with um, a lot of candidates, they they do answer questions and they go on. And I think it's a really good uh, thing that you've got in terms of you answer the question succinctly and actually allow the examiner or us to actually ask you questions. So you, you actually engage us. And there, there is a human element to this, exam so you want to engage the examiner you want them to be involved and you did that so it was a very very ill i enjoyed the viva did you you enjoy the viva yeah it was good <laughs> well hey la you know you we were meant to give a i, I promise i promised Catherine we'd give a core topics and uh oh. you, you and antifreeze hey yeah i mean uh <laughs> I, I didn't get the memo you didn't tell me <laughs> Even even I I'd I'd be I'd be uh, um, mm. I'd lost for words. <laughs> I've got to say the whole core topics thing. I don't think anyone gets asked a core topic. <laughs> you know, I think I got one core topic. Oh, did you? Everything yeah, everything else. You're, doing, just felt you're really... doing you're doing so well. Doing so well. Oh. Um, <laughs> anyway, go on. No, no. So so look, we'll, we'll go through um, what um, what you talked about. And, but just before then, you know, just sort of give us your thoughts on how, on how you felt the Viva went. Um, I think overall it was, I felt a bit scattered at some times and felt like my thoughts weren't quite flowing very well. Uh, but I think I, I've been working on trying to uh, pause in between and make sure that the examiner does have time to ask me questions. And I think that helped this time around in terms of actually directing the flow of the Viva. So yeah. in that sense, I felt better than previous ones that I've done. Yeah. yeah. And this is only your second week. So hmm. it's been, the, the trajectory is, is uh, on the right path. Like you'll be, you'll be ready for the exam next week, I reckon, at, at, uh, <laughs> at this rate. 
that's a scary thought, Stan. <laughs> <laughs> the sooner you get it done, the sooner you're free into any lockdown like the rest of us. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Um, so look, with the ketamine question, really good, strong int introduction, especially with an open question like ketamine or what is ketamine. You had a good description of how it worked as well as its, its uses. And I think that's a very good sort of strategy to have with definitions for any drug. So well done on that. Um, you were very knowledgeable to know that ketamine does have a preservative and you actually named it uh, correctly, benzothonium. Now, here, here's, here's, a little, here's a little trick for you. I mean, here's a little, a little tidbit for you. So yes, ketamine does have a preservative, but there are, there, there are um, ampules of ketamine out there which do not have preservatives. So those are made by Baxter and you'll see those preservative free, okay? But the preservative, uh, you see that the ones that we have in, in our hospitals commonly do have that preservative there, okay? okay. Uh, your description of the RNS ketamine was spot on, and I've got a bone to pick just with that. You, sorry, you're, that? Sorry, you're, you're both saying racemic, like racemic. And, uh, <laughs> and like, sorry, is this is this some kind of racial thing? <laughs> racemic, yeah. Apologies, racemic. Come on, I know, I know. I think I think Catherine just followed on from from my my mispronunciation of uh, racemic. So apologies. And I'm, I'm glad that you did mispronunciation instead of mispronunciation. So that, that was really good. <laughs> oh, I'm the police now. I, I'm so sorry. Now, now that uh, our viewers can actually see us live on YouTube, they'll know that we are ethnic. So we are allowed to mispronounce <laughs> yes, certain I'll, words. Yep. And, and they'll have to forgive us for that. Okay. <laughs> so with um, with regards to Nantimu's good description, uh, and uh, I think your, your description of the RNS was correct. It's to do with the configuration of the four functional groups around the chiral center. Do you know what the other, the other type of enantiomere is? So it can be also determined by the way it rotates the plane of polarized yeah. light. Beautiful, yeah. And then what, what's, the, um, what's the naming of that? So that's an optical isomer. Yeah, and then do you know optical the two? Yeah, like do you know the twos, uh, that, like how they name whether it goes left or right? So I think levo, there's levo and dextro rotatory. Yes. yes. And I can't remember if levo is left or not. Yeah, I feel like it's, yeah. it is cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, is That's the right. LA uh, hearing? <laughs> now, good. Um, and then uh, with the other things of ketamine, yes, it does work. It does have weak activity on the opiate receptors, but uh, it's so weak that naloxone doesn't have an effect on it. Now, the interesting thing is with your, oh, can I just say very good description of the NMDA receptor and its non-competitive binding. I thought you had a really good um, grasp of the concept of what a non-competitive uh, antagonist is versus a competitive antagonist. So you described the non-competitive antagonist very, very well, okay, with its different binding site to the allosteric binding site of the actual ligand, which is glutamate. Now, when we, when we talk about ketamine and its, its analgesic effects, so a lot of people talk about the NMDA receptor, but know that the NMDA receptor is implicated in things like hyperalgesia and neuropathic pain. And the reason for that is that the NMDA receptor is um, implicated in memory, you know, memory learning. And, and that's why you tend to sort of use it to reduce that. Now, the way that ketamine is thought to have analgesic effects, and it's 
it's quite complicated. And I don't think anyone sort of understands it, but you see, I think the best summary comes from uh, Stolting. Mm -hmm. And I think Hemings also mentions it as well. So they, they talk about activation of the descending inhibitory monoaminergic pathways. So okay. adrenaline and serotonin. Then they also talk about um, its similarity to local anesthetics where it uh, blocks sodium channels. And then the third one, which is a little bit controversial, and this is where it gets quite, quite contradictory with um, ketamine's effect, is you, have you seen this, that, new, that neuronal nicotinic acetylcholine receptors? Mm. So it's got apparently antagonistic effects on those nicotinic receptors, but we know that a lot of nicotine's side effects, which you described correctly, are cholinergic effects, which means that they have agonist effects at the muscarinic receptors. So this is why it's it's very confusing. But that's but that's how. But because of that, because of that uh, interesting differing point, that's how I, you know I sort of uh, remember it. It's okay. interesting. Thanks, Dan. That's good. It's been a while since I studied ketamine and its actions, but it, it, it worked on like every receptor except GABA. Is is that right? Yeah. Yep. Pretty that's much. right. Yeah. So it doesn't work on the same receptor as propofol uh, and midazolam. Yep. And then the, the way that uh, it uh, causes emergence delirium is, is thought to be due to the way that it interacts with the NMB receptors at the, at the brainstem level. So what it does is, mm -hmm. um, I think there's a couple of auditory nucleuses which it blocks. And so what happens is that the, the and, it's, and it's probably some visual nucleuses as well. And so that visual auditory sensation that, that, um, you, you, get, that you get gets misinterpreted by the brain. And that's how they get crazy, crazy dreams. So that, that, but, that, that, but that's all that's all like little minutiae because otherwise, you know, the, the core of that ketamine viva was very, very strong. And the only reason why I, I sort of pushed you on, on, on those sort of questions was because of how well you answered and how well you structured those really core questions. All right. Um, with regards to the ICP viva stem, again, very, very strong. So you had you had a very good grasp of the Monroe Kelly doctrine and the way that the um, intracranial pressure affects cerebral blood flow. Uh, there, this was where I also pushed you as well, because there, there is a, I think, a, a little bit of um, uh, confusion between cerebral blood flow versus cerebral blood volume. Like, is it a one-to-one is it a one-to-one -one effect? And and I think the, the, the graph that, um, oh, sorry, the, the line is from, the reference is actually from Miller's where I believe it's for every 40% of, sorry, 50% increase, 40 to 50% increase in cerebral blood flow is about a 20% increase in cerebral blood volume. All right, let me, hold on, okay. let me just make sure I get that right. So yeah, so a 50% increase in cerebral blood flow results, a change, results in a change in cerebral blood volume of only 20%. All right, so Thank not you, exactly one-to-one. Um, but your description of the factors were really good. So, you, so you so you talked about the myogenic autoregulation from arterial blood pressure, the um, metabolic flow metabolism coupling, and PaCO two, PaO two, very very good. And and then you know with regards to how volatiles affect cerebral blood flow, yeah, you got it. It's it's the it's the interplay between flow metabolism, metabolism coupling versus the direct uh, vasodilatory effects. Very good, very, very strong, Catherine, very, very strong.
It's so well done. Thanks, Dan. Similarly with, uh, with my question. So first one was anaphylaxis. And uh, so I won't go through all of it because I, I think you just answered it really well. So anyone who wants to listen can listen to your answers and pretty much that's exactly the way we wanted this fiber to go. I think um, interestingly, when people think of mediators, you, you mentioned a lot of mediators and people often will forget triptase because that's not in the context of, a, you know, of the, the bad effects of triptase. It's just the thing you measure and that can often get, get forgotten. So that was really great that you mentioned that. Um, and then, to, you know, to always mention the cardiovascular, respiratory, and maybe uh, inflammatory and other gastrointestinal effects in, in one go, because they all, you know, these are broadly speaking, all the systemic effects that could occur. Uh, you also volunteered the clotting effect. So the fact that it can cause DIC. So that was fantastic because a lot of people don't think about that. And, you know, I, I rarely think about that in an acute anaphylaxis setting because it really isn't something I think about acutely uh, because you don't observe it, but it can definitely happen. Uh, going through the adrenaline effects, yeah, I mean, it just has all those effects, and, and and we got around to talking about all of them, including cardiovascular and respiratory effects, cardiovascular being increased chronotropy, inotropy, um, stopping mast cell degranulation, as well as vasoconstriction to increase central blood volume, and uh, then bronchodilation for the respiratory effects, and then good uh, anaphylactic versus anaphylactic, fantastic, and that was pretty much the whole vibe. So yeah, again, very strong. You went through very quickly. Your answers were succinct and to the point. So I was really happy with that. Now this was an, a bit of a left, left to center vibe about bag of normal saline. And, you know, I feel like a lot of the times you, you get thrown off is not, not just because the question is a bit different, but because you use a bag of saline or CSL, or you, you know, you watch your monitors every day and you, do you ever really look at the pressure waveform or the volume or the flow wave and, and those are the things that often throw me. So, you know, as, as a tip to everyone doing this exam, think about what you're, you know, looking at in your own environment and think, what don't I know about the bear hugger or what don't I know about the thermistor because I'm putting it in every day. Uh, so, yeah. And so you're very correct about the concentrations, the fact that it really isn't very normal. Uh, the fact that, and, and you're giving me really good definitions for osmolarity and osmolarity. Oh, those were super strong definitions. <laughs> That's like, right. like I think a lot of people do struggle with those uh, mm. simple things like definitions because there's so there's so many of them. But yeah. they, someone, they came out yeah strong and succinct. So it was really impressive. Um, someone said once that there's too many L's in osmolality, so it can't be the latest. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, everyone, there's the mnemonic right there. Yes. <laughs> um, I reckon when I first started studying this, I thought, is that just a typo? Because I'd never heard of osmolality before. <laughs> anyway, so osmolarity, osmolality, uh, osmolality is kilos, but like you said, there's too many L's already. What's the difference? And yeah, so one, one generally the same, but if temperature increases, then osmolarity will uh, be less. So it's due to the, osmo it's due to the um, presence of osmo osmotically active particles, um, and you mentioned how an osmometer works, which is freezing point depression, which is fantastic. And osmolarity is far easier to measure because you just do a bit of addition of sodium, glucose, and urea. That is two times sodium, glucose, and urea. And then we even got into colligative properties, really fun word to say. And you mentioned the different points. So, you know, boiling point, saturated pressure changes, uh, freezing point depression, and, os uh, and osmosis as well. Uh, and then we talked straight from there into antifreeze and just the, <laughs> look, actually, this was a good example of I'm, I'm looking through, like sometimes your examiner 
won't, won't be that familiar with the Bible, or they'll be trying to do two things at once, and they're reading something, maybe the next question, and they're distracted. I was definitely distracted. And so you may have answered that question, and I probably just asked the same question that you'd answered. So just be aware of that, that, you know, maybe you might see a bit of a glazed look from your examiner, maybe they look down at the page, appreciate that and, and, and think that maybe I just need to say the same answer again. And I'm, I'm not actually not sure, but potentially you'd already said that it's because, it's because of the number of inc increased number of particles. And then, yeah, so sure, take your own point. Maybe you said the answer. Think, think about that. Think about managing the exam. And if you're, if you're saying a really important point, look them in the eye and go, what I really care about is this, or this is, this is the most important thing about this situation. And then so finally, what is, I've been hanging out. What is the answer for antifreeze so that- uh, Oh yeah, as in increased number of particles. Oh, oh that's, yeah. That's exactly what you said, Catherine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> about, I, uh, honestly, I, I think you said that. it about three times. <laughs> I was totally distracted. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I thought I was backing up the wrong tree. <laughs> I don't know where my head was reading about. I was reading about metabolic acidosis and thinking about strong iron difference. <laughs> Completely distracted. Front running, front running. Right. And, and then you went into very salient causes of it. And also that um, increased normal saline administration will give you a normal and iron gap metabolic acidosis uh, that is hyper, hyperchloremic as well. Excellent. Very well done. So happy with what you the, the way you answered those questions there. Yeah, congrats. And, Thanks so much, Lawrence, Dan. And, you know, the, the thing is, each time we do this with... Uh, uh, sort of someone someone here, I can tell you our vivas are getting harder and harder and harder. So for all those that don't know, all that Catherine had was just, just the, the first couple of questions, that's it. Whereas previously we've always given candidates our whole STEM. So a lot, a lot of it, especially with the definitions, she had to know it herself. So very, very impressed. Good work, Catherine. Thank you. Okay. Hey, what Thanks are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do when you finish the exam? What's the, what are your plan? Oh. Oh, if we're not in lockdown, which I suspect we will be, <laughs> hopefully I get to go back to Tassie to visit my family. That'd be nice. Oh, you'll be nice, Tassie. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully I'm 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 only going to Tassie too in uh, in Jan. We'll be we'll be okay by then, right? Yeah, I hope so. You just swim there, you know. Just <laughs> start at St Kilda Beach and just keep going south. <laughs> I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> And so thank you everyone, especially thanks Catherine for joining us and you know, pretty much getting examined and grilled live on our, on our podcast and hope everyone gets a lot out of this. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Anesthesia Coffee Break. See you guys next time. Thanks so much guys. Have a lovely rest of your evening. Thanks yeah, for having no me again. Yeah, no problem.